0: Picking up with Jeremiah chapter 43, we remember that some people from Ammon have come, emissaries of the king of Ammon, Ishmael and 10 men have come and killed the governor, Gedaliah, that King Nebuchadnezzar has appointed over Israel. And so the people who remain are afraid that Babylon will blame them. They won't believe that it was the Ammonites that killed, including some Babylonians who were there, and they think they should flee and run away. They've asked Jeremiah, Jeremiah has asked God, and God has said, stay put, running away will make you look guilty. But we see as we pick up in chapter 43, verses one through seven, that not everyone believes Jeremiah. Um, they are blaming for some reason Baruch for Jeremiah telling them to stay put. We don't really have enough information to understand why, um, but it may be that Baruch is is part Babylonian or has some other ties to Babylon or just because of the the work that Jeremiah and Baruch have done um, together. But for some reason, they blame Baruch for Jeremiah's message. So, Johanan and the men who are with him force everyone to go to Egypt. So, they take everyone against their will to Egypt, even though God has said, stay put. In verses 8 through 13, we have another object lesson. Jeremiah takes some stones and he buries them at the entrance of Pharaoh's palace. And he says to them, the Babylonian king will set his throne on top of these stones. So in other words, Babylon's going to come to Egypt. Remember, Jeremiah has already said, fleeing to Egypt will not help you escape the violence. In fact, violence will find you there. And yep, Babylon is going to come and destroy Egypt too. So there's also a metaphor that Egypt will be like nuisance vermin who cling to the shepherd's cloak in the fields. They're easy to throw off and discard. You just pick them off, throw them away. Um, Nebuchadnezzar is going to ravage the land of of Egypt. Um, And we have to wonder, was Babylon always planning to attack Egypt? Or, Or are they pursuing the Judeans who are here Did the fact that they run away and try to hide here become the reason that Egypt gets attacked? I don't know. Chapter 44, in verses 1 through 14, we see that the Judean people who have fled to Egypt looking for safety have started worshiping the Egyptian gods. It seems absolutely ridiculous to Jeremiah, and it does to me as well, that they would continue to do the very things that brought on all this in the first place. Their disobedience and their idolatry are the reason they're coming under judgment, and yet they just won't quit. I get very frustrated with them, and then I have to pause and look at my own life and see how hard it is for me to give up habits. I keep going back. And do making the same mistakes over and over. And so I want, I need to be gracious with them because I certainly want God to be gracious with me and my failures and shortcomings in there. Um, and so they're going to receive some punishment. Um, the remnant that has fled there is going to be punished there for this. Verses 15 through 19 um, Jeremiah's word to them of rebuke is met with stubborn resistance. They say, our lives are better here. Our lives are better serving these Egyptian gods than they were serving the one true living God, our own God. Um, things were bad when we were serving that God. So, you know what? We're going to keep doing exactly what we're doing. Basically, they tell tell Jeremiah, buzz off, mind your own business. In verses 20 through 30, um, Jeremiah says, things weren't bad when you were serving the Lord because you never really served the Lord wholeheartedly. You were never faithful to God. And Jeremiah explains, you were idolatrous always, and you're going to reap the consequences, unfortunately. In chapter 45, we have the shortest chapter of the book of Jeremiah. It's a message to Baruch, and it comes in about 605 B.C. The same thing is happening here that has happened earlier, uh, back in chapter 36. Jeremiah dictates this to Baruch. Um, Under different circumstances, Baruch would have had a good life. He's the grandson of a governor under the good king Josiah. His brother served in King Zedekiah's court. In a different world, he would have had a cushy, easy, successful life. And he's complaining about what could have been. Don't we all do that from time to time? Like, oh, what could have been? Yeah, I, I feel like it's an understandable that he's sometimes complaining. Um, but Jeremiah comes to him and gives him a word and basically says, um, God doesn't apologize. It, it is what it is. This is the time in which you were born. This is the time in which you live. Um, but you are going to live. You're not going to die tragically, painfully, or you're not going to, it's just not going to be the life that you wanted, but you're going to have a pretty decent life considering the times you're living in. So it's um, not exactly a great message, but it's not quite hard either. It's just a good, firm um, reality check that we all need sometimes. Chapter 46 We go into a section that starts here with 46.1 and goes all the way through 51.64 with oracles against the nations. Jeremiah is going to move from country to country, giving oracles against them. He starts with Egypt in in verses 1 through 12. Not only is this a nation of great influence, but it's the nation we've already been talking about because it's where they've been forced to flee in chapters 42 through 44. He talks here about the Battle of Carchemish, which happens in 605 B.C. This defeat is the one that secures Babylonian dominion in, in the known world of the day. Um, he talks about Egypt rises like the Nile. Every year, the Nile River flooded and bought good, brought good fertile silt up onto the land and then would recede, leaving that fertile soil. And so Jeremiah says, um, Egypt rises flows out of its borders, it rises like the Nile, but it retreats the same way because they have to retreat in the face of the Babylonians. Verses 13 through 26, Carchemish, where that battle occurred, is on the Euphrates River, and it's not in Egypt. It's a pretty good ways from Egypt. But Babylon is actually going to invade Egypt proper, Egypt itself. Remember, Jeremiah said the king of Babylon would put his throne in the palace of Egypt. So they were coming to the land of Egypt. Retreating from the battle will not end the conflict. There are several specific cities that get mentioned here. um, And he uses some degrading terms for them. In verse 20, he uses heifer or cow. In verse 22, he talks about, you're like a snake slithering away. Um, Remember that the Egyptian people, snakes and Cows and bulls were their gods. So basically, Jeremiah is calling their gods impotent. They have to run away. Um, however, they get a message of hope in verse 26. They will eventually bounce back and be restored. Now, Jeremiah inserts in verses 26 through 28, a little hope for Israel. Israel will be saved. Um, just like Egypt, they will rise once again. Chapter 47, we get the second nation. That Jeremiah targets with his oracles to the nation, and that is for Philistia, the land of the Philistines. Um, they will be attacked by Egypt from the south and by Babylon from the north. He gives us a brief, vivid description of the battle. Um, the sounds of the invaders, horses, and chariots will strike such fear in people that parents will abandon their children as they run away. They will shave their heads in mourning. That was a pretty common practice and grief. And we need to remember, they are told, that you deserve this for opposing the Lord. Once again, we just can't resist twisting the knife a little bit like you had this coming. You deserved it. Chapter 48, Jeremiah now turns to the Moabites who live south and east of Israel across the Dead Sea. He gives us a huge amount of detail, um, and apparently the huge amount of detail for the horrible things that are going to happen is due to their religious practices. Um, they engaged in child sacrifice. Shamash that we see in verse 7, 13, and 46 was the national god of the Moabites numerous cities are named. We get a lot of geography here. They are arrogant, prideful, insolent, and boastful. And in verse 47, however, they also get a little message of hope. They have a future. Chapter 48, the next focus for the oracle against the nations are the Ammonites. In verses one through six, we see that the Ammonites lived east of the Jordan and north of the Moabites. They are frequently mentioned whenever we see the Moabites mentioned because they were frequent allies. They would band together to do things. Their national god was Milcom, M-I-L-C-O-M. The tribe of Gad, if you remember, when the Hebrew people arrived to take the promised land and they've gone in and conquered the tribe of Gad chose to settle on that side of the Jordan river. And it seems as though when the Ammonites come in, they displace the tribe of Gad. And so now it said that's going to be reversed. Israel will dispossess the Ammonites or drive them out of that land. We get a lot of the names of cities and we see that mighty Milcom will go into exile and everyone will be terrified. There will be great terror. However, verse 6, they get a message of restoration for the future as well. Verses 7 through 22 focus on Edom. These are the descendants of Esau. Remember Jacob and Esau? Um, And there Esau was the older brother who's cheated out of his birthright. And these are his descendants. Genesis chapter 25 verses 19 through 26 give you more of that story. They lived south of the Moabites in a rocky desert region along the southern end of the Dead Sea. Um, Much of these verses right here sound like Obadiah's chapter on Edom's coming judgment. We'll take a look at that in a few days. Um, There's going to be complete destruction That's what's predicted here. There is no promise of restoration given to the Edomites. In verses 23 through 27, Jeremiah now turns his um, attention to the city of Damascus. Damascus is the capital of Syria, and so it is a reference to what will happen to the Syrian people. They are to the north. Damascus has been a party city you would hear reveling and partying and cries of celebration. In verse 25, we see that now we will only hear the cries of anguish, cries of pain there, and there's no restoration promised for Damascus. In verses 28 through 33, we talk about the cities of Kadar and Hazor. Um, Little is known of these two cities, but the people sound nomadic. Like they haven't completely settled in. They're living in tents instead of houses. They don't have any protective walls. So these are really more like settlements than towns proper. They're probably traders um, trading goods and services with the different peoples around. And the tents allow them to, to move and change things when they need to. They are defeated by Babylon, and there's no restoration promise. Um, Hazor, in fact, it says no one lives there. It's uninhabitable. Verses 34 through 29, we now turn to Elam. This is a country several hundred miles east of Babylon. Um, It really is here to represent the farthest known location for Nebuchadnezzar. Basically, it's saying the end of his reach. He can reach the end of the known world. And this one is dated as being at the beginning of Zedekiah's reign. They do, however, get a restoration promise. Um, chapters 50 and 51 are going to conclude, um, Jeremiah's oracles against the nations. The last and longest oracle here is saved for Babylon itself. Chapter 50 here represents the final words of the prophet Jeremiah. In verses one through three, we see that the Babylonian gods will be put to shame. Baal and Merodach are their gods And they're going to be attacked by an invader from the north. This most certainly is a reference to the Persian Empire. In verses 4 through 10, this turn of events is going to bring about a new day for God's people. Um, The sheep who have been lost are going to come home and be lost no more. It talks here about the male goats or the he goats. Um, This is really bellwethers. We're talking about bellwethers it means a trend indicator. So the he goats or the male goats are going to lead them skipping back home. A weather was a castrated goat and they would put a bell around that goat's neck. And that would tell the shepherd where the flocks were, were moving. Even if they were out of sight at the moment, like over a rise, they would be able to hear them. They castrated the goat to keep from hearing the ringing of that bell as they pursued the girls. So, Um, a bellwether or a male goat, a he goat, like it's talking about here would be a trend indicator. So everyone's going to follow these goats home. Verses 11 through 16, what Babylon once rejoiced in, she's now going to be on the receiving end of. Verses 17 through 20, um, they've already been called lost sheep. Now Israel is called hunted sheep, um, But the destroyers are are going to be punished, and they're going to be restored. Verses 21 through 32 give us a description of the Babylonian demise. Babylon has been known as a hammer, um, descending on the whole earth, like beating down all that is there. But the hammer of the whole earth is no match for the weapons that come out of the Lord's armory. God is mightier than the hammer of Babylon. Verses 33 and 34, restoration for God's people is set against the the judgment that is coming on Babylon. In verses 35 through 46, Babylon will face the sword. They will have war, but they will also have drought. And they're going to be given into the hands of a cruel northern people, which, as we've said, is the Persian Empire coming into power. In verse 43, the king of Babylon becomes unable to flee or defend himself like a woman in labor. When a woman is in the midst of giving birth to a baby, she can't run, she can't protect, she can't defend herself. Um, labor pains come over you, and all you can do is, is push. In verses 44 through 46, the Chaldeans will be taken by surprise. Remember, Chaldeans are another name for Babylon. And it's going to be like a lion attacking sheep. Great will be their fall. Chapter 51 in verses 1 through 14, we get battle descriptions that continue. There's a brief insertion of hope for Israel and Judah in verse 5 and an urge for the people to leave Babylon now in verse 6. Get out while the getting's good. It's going to be bad. In verse 11, we see that it talks about the king of the Medes. This would be Persia. It's the Persians or the Medes. This is the first direct mention of who those people are. And we know that the Persian Empire or the Medes destroyed Babylon in 539 BC. In verses 15 through 19, power and wisdom that come from God is contrasted with the stupidity of humans and idols. As we move into verses 20 through 32, we see that Israel, who are God's people, or how God is going to destroy the opposition in verses 20 through 23. It's really an interesting picture here. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal. Um, That's what 2 Corinthians 10.4 says to us. And when we look at the armor of God from Ephesians 6, most of those pieces are defensive. The only offensive weapon is the sword of the spirit, which is said to be God's word. So God is going to destroy opposition differently than the way the people groups of the world fight. We fight differently. God's love overtakes. We overcome evil with good, not with evil. In verse 30, mighty Babylon as a warrior, the mighty warriors of Babylon will hesitate to fight um, Babylonian soldiers were not known for hesitating. They ran headlong into battle and never shrunk away from it. But now in the face of the Persians and the Medes, they cower. They stay inside. Um, They do what others did before them. In verse 31, from all ends of the empire, runners are going to come carrying news of the defeat that is happening everywhere. The Babylonian empire is collapsing. In verses 33 through 58, we get more of the same. However, we get more references to specific individuals here. We name people, whereas most of the oracles past have named cities. There is going to be vindication for Jerusalem. We see that in verses 34 through 37 and verse 49. We also see another instance of that cryptogram for Babylon. We see Shishak. Baal, remember, is a Babylonian god. In verse 45, once again, there's a plea to flee from Babylon to all who can do so. Like, leave now, get out while the getting's good. In verse 53, though Babylon should mount up to heaven... um, you see in that verse right there and i believe this might be a reference that goes back to the tower of babel remember it was the precursors of the babylonians that tower of babel where they were going to um, build all the way up to heaven um, reach a, a staircase into heaven and so i think i think we're making a word play on that though babylon should mount up to heaven they still won't win verses 59 through 64 the oracles are now over The date here is the fourth year of King Zedekiah's reign. He sends a scroll with the judgments on it to Babylon by Sariah, um, who is to read it and then tie it to a stone and throw it into the Euphrates River. Um, It being tied to a stone is an object lesson. Remember, the prophets were great artists. Um, They use music, poetry, drama, Um, and object lessons, performance art to reach us. And so he ties a stone, he throws it. And so the point is that Babylon will sink like this scroll. And then in chapter 52, the final chapter is an appendix to the book of Jeremiah. It recounts the destruction of Jerusalem. It borrows quite heavily from Jeremiah chapter 39 and from 2 Kings chapter 25. The final passage in verses 31 through 34, in fact, are virtually identical to 2 Kings 25 27 through 30. We are 40 years after the fall and the exile, and we hear about King Jehoiakim being shown mercy. It's a glimmer of hope for the kingly line of David. It just might survive. Take a look at Second Samuel 7, 8 through 17. And with that, with Jeremiah getting on to the people, preaching, uh, having a ministry of around 50 years that is largely unsuccessful, seeing his nation fall, prophesying... Uh, destruction to, to all the nations of the known world, um, and a promise, a little glimmer of promise of hope of restoration. With that, Jeremiah's anthology of his sermons comes to a close.